everybody, this is Life in Life Only, episode 32, Living is Easy with Eyes Closed, which is of course a John Lennon lyric from the song Strawberry Feels Forever, and a title chosen by my collaborator, co-conspirator if you like, Nick Knack Marsh. This is actually just a short intro to say that what you're about to hear is a compilation of two appearances I made last year in August and September on Nick Knack's podcast, which is simply called the Nick Knack Podcast. Originally I was just going to present an edit of each show and then run them one after another. But as sometimes happens, the plan changed during editing, and I'm now presenting it as one show with an intro and outro. The original talks can be found in the show notes, by the way. Nick Knack is an artist, and his show is, as he touches on during the conversation, a very personal journey into his psyche and some of the challenges he has encountered and still encounters. And that's one of the things we talk about, as well as creativity, a little bit of politics, and a few other things along the way. John Lennon gets quite a few mentions as well, which will please the part of my audience that have migrated from Glass Onion. There are a couple of topical references from last year, including 9-11, because it was the 20th anniversary last September. There's also a reference to The Corporation, which I put out on video last month. And uh, also a bizarre reference to Prince Philip as well, <laughs> which came totally off the cuff. Certainly wasn't planning on talking about Prince Philip. The rest is certainly not specific to 2021. I think and hope you'll find some stuff in there to inspire and hopefully to make you think. It was a rambling old style podcast conversation even before the edit I did and now it's probably even more so. But uh, I really think there's some good stuff in there and you're going to enjoy it. If you're new to Life and Life Only, it's a search for inner and outer truth, both of which are tackled, if you like, in this episode. I'm also a life coach, and if you or anyone you know would be interested in coaching sessions, including remotely, so you don't have to be local to me, in fact, you can be anywhere with an internet connection, or you'd like to offer any feedback or just say hi, please write to me at lifeandlifeonlypod at gmail.com. I've also put in the show notes my life coaching page from the fiverr.com website. It's a website where professionals can advertise their services. There's no spoken outro to this episode, but there's quite a bit of music, including some from myself and Nick Knack. And there's some music to play us out at the end. That's it. Just to say that the next episode will be the corporation, the audio version of it, which will be uh, edited down from the two-hour conversation I had with Luke Thompson, which, as I said, went out on video. And you can find that on the Life and Life Only YouTube page. Thanks to Nick Knack for having me on the show. And uh, we'll be back soon for more Life and Life Only. So take care and enjoy the show. Hello, folks. This is the Knickknack Podcast. This will be Season 15, Episode 22, and I'm calling it Living is Easy with Eyes Closed. I'm Knickknack, a neurodivergent and queer person that seeks knowledge, truth, and justice above all else. And previously, this podcast has been my way of sharing, for the most part, my story. Today, I sat down to talk with Anthony Bertuno, a person of many talents, podcaster, musician, life coach, John Lennon expert, Beatle expert, English teacher, many, many other things. And we just sat and talked and we had a great conversation and my mind is still reeling from it even after having sat here and done the editing for the last couple hours. It's pretty deep, it's pretty long, much longer than I would normally do, but I think it's worth it, and I will come back in subsequent episodes with a deeper reflection, and hopefully we'll talk to Anthony sometime again in the future. Again, thank you so much, Anthony, for your time, and for everybody out there listening, 
grab your favorite beverage, grab a breath, and let's get started. Anthony, I want to thank you so much for your time today. I want to say I've been checking out your work for maybe two, three weeks now. I think I found it through the 60s recording podcast. Seriously, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. It was great to get your message. And um, yeah, I'm trying to put stuff out there. I'm really, really terrible at marketing, but I'm getting slowly better. And I I just have a website now, which has helped. So I've got everything in one place. So it's easier for people to find it. But yeah, thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, no problem. My interest is very much kind of the artistic bent and your artistic talents are many and varied. And it's interesting to me because our points of origin seem to be quite similar in that, at least in your podcasting realm, you you started out with a focus on John Lennon and then moved on to kind of film art and then life and then a, a bunch of other stuff from your own experience. What was your experience of that journey? Well, it's been quite a journey, I can tell you. With the John Lennon thing, I mean, I've just written the intro to a book I'm hoping to write based on the podcast, and the John Lennon thing just runs very deep with me. I'm sure you'll agree that childhood stuff and teenage stuff, good and bad, of course, never really leaves you. And um, with John Lennon, I sort of discovered him about the age of 14. And to cut a very long story short, I just was completely... I wouldn't say taken in because that sounds like it's deceptive, but uh, I connected with so much. And I think in common with thousands, maybe even millions of young guys, you get that John Lennon image, the sort of artistic rebel. And I've realized, you know, as you'll know, if you've been listening to Glass Onion, that a lot of that is an image that was projected after he died. But within that, he's still an amazing character, I think. And um, fast forward, you know, nearly 30 years, I was just always amazed that there were no podcasts about John Lennon. So I thought I've got to fill that gap. It's just got to happen. And um, went through a period of procrastination, a bit of technophobia here and there. And then I eventually did it. And I think one of the things maybe we'll talk about is how you go in with a plan, but you've, you've just got to allow the space for quote unquote, the magic to happen. With Glass Onion, I'm using John Lennon as a focus. It gets into the sort of psychology of him. And I really do branch off and I give myself a license because I'm, I'm making barely any money and you know, a few donations here and there. So I'm thinking there's no rules. Why should I limit myself? And then after a while, I thought, well, John Lennon's great. And I've done now two and a half years on one person. But there's another side to me, which basically came through what I'd call alternative media. And it's truth-seeking, which probably I've always been doing, and it's become terribly cliché, but I think it's a real thing, you know, really trying to look deep at the world. And really, it comes down to two fundamental questions. Who am I and how does the world work? So that's where we get the inner and outer truth idea. So I've found that there's definitely um, a kind of interweaving of the two podcasts, and occasionally I reference them on each other. And then I've got a third one called Film Gold. Still a deep dive, but that's I would consider that more just purely fun, whereas the other two... You know, a lot of it's for myself, for sure, but there is some stuff of value. So that's why I was delighted that you contacted me. I get messages from all over the world, just people saying, oh, I've discovered your podcast and uh, 
I think the idea of people binging uh, your episodes, <laughs> which happens a lot with podcasting, it's it's very, very flattering. And it, I think it's almost the best way to do it because you kind of establish a connection with the podcaster just through their voice. And if you wait a week or two weeks between each episode, you don't quite get the full effect. I think binge listening or, you know, binge watching if you're watching a series or something is probably the best way. I tend to agree. And it, it's funny to me, just certain elements of crossovers. I think the way that you've ventured into your artistic self from the podcasting perspective anyway, obviously mm-hmm. you, have, you have so many artistic dimensions, it's almost mind boggling. <laughs> but from the podcasting, you know, I started with a couple of your early Glass Onion episodes and then did a couple of later ones and then kind of skipped around and did some binging. But it was interesting to watch the journey because of course, I've had a journey of my own myself, so I see the parallels, but also just the artistic way of having that base, that anchor, you know, you start with this main thing and starting with this main thing leads you to these other artistic things that you wouldn't otherwise be able to get to. And podcasting specifically is such a, I mean, it's not quite a free medium anymore, at least not the way it was when I started in 2005, 2006, that sort of timeline, but it still has a lot more space within it than broadcast media of any sort. I don't know what the rules in in the UK might be, but in the US anyway, if you sign up to do volunteer work at a community radio station, as I've done in the past, or something similar, they will literally give you a brochure, including things that you cannot do on air. And the most humorous thing to me is one of those things literally includes Carlin's seven words still. Yeah. Even though it's been something like 50 years. Absolutely, yeah. I've never actually worked at a radio station, but just from my experiences of listening to commercial radio, because, you know, I used to have a car and go to the office, do a job that didn't really inspire me. Get you to Bill Hicks territory. (laughs) Get up at 6.30, get in traffic. (laughs) Or I could stay at home and learn to play the sitar. Anyway, sorry. And, uh, you know, I used to listen to the radio. And now I could barely listen to it at all. I have one radio station that plays. It's like classic rock, classic pop. And I just listen to it because I know a really happy 60s song is going to come on. And they're going to come one after another. But as soon as the ads start and just all the repetition, it's just really breathtaking how limited, for example, playlists are on commercial radio you know with the Beatles is a little bit different you've probably got a choice of about 20 songs but if you take for example let's say that they say oh here's a song by Johnny Cash coming up it's almost certainly going to be Ring of Fire, Folsom Prison Blues or one other so I think podcast is this wonderful thing where we are free and I think people sometimes limit themselves in fact and I find myself doing this and I really have to fight against it You don't have to have it within a certain duration, for example. I mean, it is better if you want people to listen to it, to not make it four hours. But I think really of commercial radio and commercial media in general, it's so limited and limiting. And it gets you in this funny mindset where you're just listening to the the DJ just saying the same thing all the time, repeating the same news stories. So I think with a creative space, it is giving yourself space. One thing I got from John and Yoko was... The idea of, you you remember John used to say, oh, I'm an artist with a capital A. And anyone could be an artist. You know, you you can just record some noise. You could argue about that. You know, is there skill required or not? But I think um, in England, people really hate anything that seems pretentious. And calling yourself an artist seems pretentious. But a friend of mine said to me, that's the space you've got to get into. You know, say to yourself, I am an artist. I am a creative person. And that creativity can flow, you know? Totally. Yeah. It's really interesting with podcasting over recent years, 
I don't remember when it started, but at some point, institutions like the BBC and NPR got involved. Hmm. Being the type of podcaster that I am, and I would guess based on our conversation, being the type of podcaster that you are, it's almost offensive that you have to now share this space with mainstream media because it's like, no, that's not the point. Well, the, the thing that made me the most angry is that we have a thing in England, the Radio Times, which gives all the TV listings. And um, I mean, I never buy it, but when I go and visit my parents, they have it. And at the end of the year, they have top 10 lists. And of course, now the Radio Times has a podcast section. All the podcasts they're talking about are podcasts by famous people, or as you said, by institutions, you know, the BBC, etc. And they have top 10 podcasts of the year. And essentially, it's top 10 podcasts by famous people. <laughs> There's a parallel here, because um, I'm going to imagine that you don't swallow what the mainstream media tells you, certainly not, um, you know, without questioning it. And Another thing, you know, you'll have top 10 news stories. And again, it's top 10 mainstream media news stories. Big difference. You know, it's not the top 10 most significant things that have happened in the world. So, yeah, I share your annoyance. Absolutely. Again, you know, thinking back to the way you you do Glass Onion and the the way you kind of use John Lennon as a lens. If you look Mm. at John's both creative output and his life experiences as two separate things, you start to see a picture that is uniquely different. Something interesting about the 60s is it was a time, albeit very briefly, where all these fields of study and interest and the humanities, in a, you know, if you were to try and throw one word at it, all these disciplines started to challenge authority in a larger way. I don't think you can necessarily pin it down to one person. You can't say, oh, Frank Zappa enabled all this to happen, or John Lennon enabled all this to happen. You know, it's like it was a collective cultural thing that happened, which is a beautiful world to go back to and reflect on and try and exist in as much as you can, especially, you know, both you and I were born well after the 60s. So, I mean, like if you're born well after that period, it becomes an interesting historical point of, well, gee, we almost got there. Yeah. We almost made some progress and then it all fell Mm. apart. And then you're just sitting there scratching your head going, why did it die? A couple of ideas about that. With the anti-authority thing, what happened in England? Have you ever heard of the Goons radio show? In passing, it's not coming to mind, though. It probably comes up in connection with other things, like Peter Sellers was one of the Goons originally. There was a kind of a trajectory that started from about the 50s of really satire, which essentially is challenging authority by making fun of it. If you watch the Beatles' first film, Hard Day's Night, you get John having these little digs at authority that at that time he was quite controlled and he was deciding to play the game. And then it went on. And then by the late 60s, we just got a completely different world. I mean, that period from 63 to about 69, I mean, from our trajectory or from our perspective now, you just can't imagine, you know, and I wasn't there, but I have studied it quite a bit isn't the same but it gives me some ideas those six years for example the changes that went on in the world are just incredible and you're right we are at a point now where the alternative media that i'm some kind of involvement with and have been since about 2008 it's really late 60s rhetoric i don't mean rhetoric in a bad way it's the late 60s sentiments now there's a podcast i listen to called tangentially speaking by a guy called chris ryan and he says oh you know my friends call me an old hippie and you know, and I'm proud of that because a lot of what the hippies said was kind of right. But I think where it got lost really was in the 80s politically, because essentially when Reagan and Margaret Thatcher, who's our 
first female prime minister came in at the beginning of the 80s, they heralded this switch to privatization. And they said the government, they had a very clever slogan, the government is the problem. So they used the idea that people realize that governments lie after Watergate. And um, I guess MK Ultra wasn't known at that time, but everything has come out since. So they their idea was to deregulate. So the corporations start to have power instead of the governments. But as bad as governments are, I would say corporations are arguably worse in that we do at least elect politicians. Although, you know, FDR, one of your famous presidents, said uh, presidents are selected rather than elected, which is pretty interesting coming from an actual president rather than a conspiracy theorist, you know. But uh, you're right, there was a point, you know, I'd love to go back to the late 60s. I'd love to be there. You know, I'm sure it wasn't all as amazing as everybody says, but I'm sure there was some kind of spirit there. And um, it got lost somewhere in the 80s, and we're still trying to pull ourselves out of it, I feel. The funny thing is, the human experience is so complex that we can try and try and try, but I don't think we can ever really capture it because it's so much of an individual experience. I remember when I was very heavily into John and the Beatles, similar time frame in my life, Sgt. Pepper's was the first Beatles album I got on my 10th birthday in parallel with getting a Nirvana album. Oh, wow. You know, picture the end of September 1994. Curvain died six months before. Either the anthology had just come out or was about to come out. Just about to, yeah, a year later. Yeah, but, you know, you, you had this interesting time where the Beatles were popular and also there was this very evolved anti-establishment stuff going on through the likes of Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Green Day, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, and then you bring X-Files and Art Bell and all that crap into it. And it's just like, oh, my Mm. God. (laughs) You don't know what the truth is, but you know that there's something there to at least be grasped. Yeah. That old phrase, you know, the truth is out there. I think we've, Mm. we've both used it in our podcasts and media at various points. And a lot of your music also references that sort of idea and mentality. Do you think there's a specific truth out there or is it just kind of this constant ongoing process through just being creative and trying to uncover it i would say you could just grasp at little bits of truth there's not one for everybody but um all you really have to do and can do is every day just try and make a little bit of progress so when i go to sleep at night i've stopped beating myself up if i don't produce something every single day like when I go to bed at night, I do want to think that maybe I've learned a little bit and I've passed a little bit of information or knowledge along. And I think that's all you can do. I think there are truths. There are little kernels of truth out there. I wrote this thing, just a few sentences, called The True Battle. And it says, uh, dot, dot, dot. And out of the years of befuddlement, insufficient rest and worrisome thoughts came a moment of calm clarity. He'd always reasoned that God, and I'm using God to say the creator, must have put the truth and the path to mental freedom far away so as to test him and make the discovery of it a long drawn out struggle, a life's work. In reality, he put it right there in front of him so as to provide a greater test, a test of courage, a test of nerve, to have the nerve to reach out and touch it. Instead of the proverbial long road to salvation, it was more like a proverbial flick of a switch, a change in the mind, a decision to live with more generosity of spirit and graciousness. And what was this truth? that ultimately the battle was against himself and that his, quote, enemies were just inadvertently providing the necessary challenges to help him realise this. He quickly thanked them and moved on. I would just say to anyone listening to this, yeah, just just try every day of your life, 
to try and learn something and try and pass it on if you think it's useful. Worrying about finding a truth, it's almost the trick that advertising pulls, which is dangling some thing that you can aim for, but you can never quite reach. There are moments of realization. I'm sure you must have had plenty of these in your time, you know? That light bulb goes off. I think the other thing that things like meditation help you with, you've got to clear some space because I think most people, without realizing it, they're essentially controlling their lives. You know, obviously, you know, they may have external things like a job and a mortgage and a family, but within that, you know, it's incredible how much, unless we guard against it, we all create loads of rules for ourselves. We're creating almost a prison for ourselves. So I think really truth, again, is about clearing space. You've got to let the magic happen. If there's some magic, you've got to let it in. Well put, Anthony. And it's an honor to have this conversation with you. I'm just going to oh, stop it, stop say it. it that way. <laughs> you know, I called the title Living is Easy with Eyes Closed. And obviously mm. that's, you know, John Lennon, Strawberry Fields Forever, my view of his peak. But even though that was a biographical song about himself and the Salvation Army home that was behind his house or not directly behind, but kind of up the hill. I've been, I've been there. It was mm. interesting to see it within his struggle to wrestle with whatever demons he was directly facing at the moment. He found this kernel of truth, like you're saying, that so many people live through the world, but they don't think outside of their pre-programmed mundane. Here's what I'm going to get up and do every day because I have to do it. And it kind of shows up in, in some of Persick's writing. I, I know we were talking before the show, and you had mentioned that you had read a little bit of Persick yourself. And mm. I'm trying to remember the part, particularly at the beginning, when he's kind of riding through Western Minnesota, and he's still riding with um, John and Sylvia. And Sylvia makes the comment to the extent of, you know, I was watching people on the on the interstate, and they looked like zombies, like they were dead or... You know, I don't remember the exact line. And I think that's very much it. And Persick's comeback was you work to live and that's what they are doing. There's there's no logical place you can take it from there, at least according to his perspective at that point. But I think it's very it's very symbolic of that's the world we live in. And increasingly, that's a world that Norm Chomsky. Have you ever? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've listened to that. I have reservations. I could tell you about them in a second, but yeah, I've got a hell of a lot from Chomsky. Yeah, this idea that we are not meant to think critically anymore, I guess, is really what it is. I think, you know, when we talk about, I mentioned Bill Hicks earlier, and there was that skit about, you know, driving to a job that doesn't inspire you. Uh, everything they tell you about pot is a lie. Tell you pot smoking makes you unmotivated. That is definitely a lie. <laughs> Because when you're high, you can do everything you normally do just as well. You just realize it's not worth the fucking effort. <laughs> Big difference. Sure, I could get up at dawn, get in traffic, go to a job I hate that does not inspire me creatively whatsoever for the rest of my life. I could do that. <laughs> Or I could sleep till noon. Get up and learn how to play the sitar. What is it, one string? How fucking hard can that be? 
think it is possible. I mean, I don't have children, but people who have children, it is possible to make a decision to do a job that you're not really into, but you can tolerate. And there is a way where you could make it tolerable. But I don't think it's even about necessarily always the job you have, but it's your attitude. And yeah, living is easy with eyes closed. And I'm sure you know the Beatles song, Rain. The whole premise of that, apparently, you know, when the rain comes, they run and hide their heads. And the rain could be the truth or a truth and a truth that's too close to home. You know, they run and hide their heads or they put their umbrella up. It's funny, actually, it just came to me. I think creative people seem to love rain. (laughs) I got caught in the rain a few weeks ago. And instead of running and being afraid of it, because at the end of the day, it's just water. (laughs) Right. I don't know. I just embraced it. You know, I didn't quite do a rain dance, but, you know, I was just thinking, fucking hell, this is great. I love this. And, you know, it's true that weeks and weeks of rain can get a bit boring and a bit relentless. But uh, it's very funny that creative people always seem to like rain because it's water coming from the gods, essentially, isn't it? You know, there's a lot to that. Mm. I was thinking to myself before we, we started the call just about this phenomenon that I keep trying to understand. I didn't spend a great deal of time exploring areas of Great Britain other than Manchester and Liverpool when I was there. But there was something about, even though Liverpool wasn't quite what I thought it was going to be, because obviously it's not 1955. You know, at the time it was 2010. (laughs) You know, even though the the experience was slightly different, it's like there's something about both these cities and they're somewhere in the range of 50-something degrees north. And then I look at my U.S. experience and I say, well... What are the cities that I've most enjoyed and, and found to be the most artistic? The cities that come to mind first are New York to some extent, but more even than New York, I think of Minneapolis, I think of Seattle, I think of Portland, and I think of San Francisco, and that's mm-hmm. the list. And it's just like there, there's something about living in a colder, darker climate, and you can even extend it to the Southern Hemisphere, uh, having explored both Melbourne and Sydney a little bit. In 2001, I found, for whatever reason, Melbourne I like, Sydney I don't like. And I couldn't quite understand it other than to later say to myself, well, Melbourne is closer to the South Pole than Sydney is. (laughs) And that was my only only way to understand it. And I, I still can't explain it. That's funny. I was in Melbourne and Sydney in 2001. I wonder if we passed each other in the street. You never know. I think when I was traveling, a lot of it is the people that you're with. Yes. I I remember Melbourne just being really nice. I remember it being a bit rainy, but nicely rainy. It wasn't that kind of relentless rain that you get in England. The rain in England is not even necessarily, it's not not tropical storms like you might find in in India or Thailand or somewhere like that. It's this sort of annoying, niggly rain that just sort of comes down all day. (laughs) But yeah, it's, it's funny, being in Manchester and Liverpool, I mean, I think everyone in England, if they're honest, would say that the North is friendlier. And it doesn't mean that they're better people. It just means that outwardly they're more friendly. So I think you picked a couple of good places there. And Liverpool, just because of the Beatles and because of what I've discovered since, just has a kind of a magic about it. I think it's a humour about the people. Again, we talked about childhood memories before, teenage memories. I went to Liverpool for the first time in 1995 and I was with my first love, like my first serious relationship. So those two things together was just amazing. But to go to all these places, you know, like Gambia Terrace where John Lennon and Stuart Sutcliffe, and we went for a few drinks in the Yee Crack, which was the pub next to the art college, which hasn't changed 
hadn't changed, I should say, too much then. Yeah, there's just a magic about it. And it's just, it's, it's a memory that you just can't, you're never going to erase that. If it's a bad memory, of course, you can take steps to try and erase it. If it's a good memory, you don't really want to erase it, do you? So it's going to be there forever, pretty much. That's a valid point. You can't erase or negate the experiences that you had at a place that might make that experience more unique. It's funny, like the bulk of my traveling, the way I got to Australia was this, both Australia and New York for the first time was this through my high school choir. And, you know, it was very much a guided traveling, you know, tour guide sort of travel. There were some house stays in in Australia, but in, in the case of New York, it was, well, I want to go to Strawberry Field, but... Nobody is interested in going to central into Central Park, so I'm kind of screwed. And Manhattan, of course, I don't I don't know if you've ever been to Manhattan, but Manhattan is big enough to where you know you look at it in the map and you think, oh, I can walk this easily, and you start walking. It's mm. like, no, nope, that's not going to work. I've been to America to the states once, September 2002. I remember because it was the first anniversary of 9/11, and we stayed in Boston mostly for about a week. And I really like Boston, and we spent a weekend in New York. It was kind of everything I was expecting, but it was lovely September sunshine. And I walked and walked and walked. I can't remember from where. Obviously, I went past the Dakota and I went into the coffee shop that he used to go. La Fortuna, I think it's called. Oh. And there were pictures of him all over the walls. And I spoke to the lady who remembered, I think she'd been there that long. Because it was only, well, funny to think, it was only 20 years after he died. And now it's 20 years ago. So I was slap bang in the middle there. But yeah, I love New York. For me, because I'm... On the West Coast, and every time I've ever gone, most of the times I've gone that far east, you know, 3,000 miles, give or take, it's usually been over land. So by the time I finally get to New York, I'm just exhausted. So I don't have the energy. And New York is very much a place of dynamic energy. More than any other city I've been to, New York is just this constant, hard, artistic assault on your senses. Yeah, I wouldn't say London and New York look similar, but they have a lot of similarities. I mean, I guess they've been cleaned up, literally cleaned the streets a bit more. But in the past, they were both quite dirty, which sort of added to the appeal almost. And there were all kinds of possibilities there. But at the same time, it's a hard place if you don't earn much money. And when I lived in London at various times, I tried to just enjoy the experience, thinking that I'll probably never be able to live here permanently and i don't think i'd want to even yeah yeah it's really interesting i remember my time in seattle i had a little basement apartment kind of in a a black neighborhood not too far from what i later learned to be jimmy hendrix's school high school i wasn't aware of that at the time i had no idea it was just like oh i've got this nice little basement apartment for 650 dollars a month in a city for the first time in my life you know what maslow might describe as a peak experience in many ways And it's just this funny thing of even as I was having this experience, I was in the basement of the city, Mm. literally in the basement of the city, because I I never achieved much economic upward mobility. It's kind of like, well, you're there, but you can only experience what you can experience. And yeah, a lot of my travel has been my travels have been the same way. It's like, oh, well, there's, you know. Here's the inside of Mendips offered as a tour. Can I afford that? Well, no. I don't know if that's a great example because I can't remember if they charged or not, but you get my point. They did, yeah. But that, that is a great one, though. If you do ever get back there, try and do that tour because that is kind of magical, really. New York has always been my favorite setting for films. 
and I'm a huge fan, really. My my era of choice is 70s, that Hollywood new wave. And it's funny, they, they call it the paranoia era. But I'd say it's more like the, re- the realism era, you know, because it was around the time of Watergate. But if you take Taxi Driver, for example, if you leave aside the stuff at the end, the really violent stuff, essentially you've got a guy living in a city who's completely outside the city and he's just living in this sort of quote-unquote straight world and I mean straight as in square world, conventional world of millions of people living in a city and he's walking the streets but he's got no connection to anyone he sees and I had a bit of that in London. Now I did, I've always managed to find a little niche group and um, perhaps I could talk a bit later about how you can attract the people you want into your life but uh, yeah New York has got that fascination with me and London London we've had that a bit but British films we haven't really had a British taxi driver <laughs> for some reason British films tend to be quite quaint you can get realistic ones but uh, what you're saying about living in the city I've had exactly the same thing it's like you're there but you're not quite there <laughs> tell me about your musical experience I took up the guitar when I was 14, around the time I discovered the Beatles. So it can't really be an accident there. And I did try writing songs like way back when I was 15. And there was one song that I wrote when I was 16 that I ended up recording when I was 40. So I kept songwriting for a while, and then for about 10 years, I became essentially a covers artist. And I found there was a kind of an art in doing covers gigs. And I mean, it was for a little bit of money as well. I don't think I would have done it just for the fun. And then what happened was I moved to Madrid when I was 39. You know, open mic, list of names, you all get three songs or 10 minutes, however long it is. And I suddenly discovered tons and tons of musicians. And um, I thought, I've got to just do one album, just get these old songs that I wrote years ago. I can change them a little bit. And the guy I was working with was just an amazing musician and a a great producer as well. And I said, I'd really just like to do an album and kind of get these songs out there, get a good version. Because I had demos all over my YouTube and my SoundCloud accounts. And he said, yeah, let's do it. So over about, I think, nine months, I recorded my first album at the age of 40. And then I suddenly 
became a songwriter again and I did two more studio albums of mostly original material. There's literally like one or two covers on there and then put out a couple of live albums. So now I've got some total of five albums out there, but also everything is on my website. There's demos, there's live performances. And I've suddenly got like an absolute ton of stuff online, but all really in the last, say, seven or eight years. And the truth stuff wasn't really in any of the earlier songs, perhaps because I just wasn't really aware of it or wasn't involved in any kind of community. But it's kind of seeped out. And there's a song I'd like to recommend people listen to called The Fool's Guide. It's about seven minutes. It's very, very epic. And there's eight or nine people on it. And that really, yeah, the tagline is about believing what you read and believing what you hear. Opinions are like iPhones. Everybody's got one. And narcissists are like broken hearts. Everybody knows one. Wipe them out. My other big favourite, really, I don't know if you come across, is a song called Life Goes On. And it was taking a John Lennon model. If you think of songs like um, I Want You, She's So Heavy, or You Know My Name, Look Up The Number, the idea of just using one phrase and trying to make a whole song out of that one phrase. And Life Goes On, the only lyrics are Life Goes On, Dear, Please Be Strong, Dear. And we managed to make a four or four and a half minute song out of it. And someone came in and did a Spanish musician lady came in and did this amazing violin part she just came up with in about half an hour In that case, you don't really need any lyrics. It's all there in the music. We managed to capture just that one sentiment. And I even uh, cheekily made a video using the Stargate sequence from 2001 A Space Odyssey, which is uh, right up there with my favourite films. If you want to look at it on YouTube, it's called Life Goes On Stargate Odyssey. Unfortunately, the actual, I put a load of echo on the song, not the greatest version of the song, but it's the song, you know, over this Stargate footage. So (laughs) that's another thing. But it's funny. Having done all that in 2019, I haven't really written or felt like recording anything since. My focus suddenly switched to podcasting. So I don't know if you find this, but 
sometimes it's tough to juggle everything and you find for a few months your focus is on one thing and then something triggers oh i want to get back to music and then i might go back to that for a few months so it's all creativity at the end of the day isn't it in, in a sense it's all one thing it really is it's just it's you you're expressing your artistic self in different venues obviously you have the fool's guide so that was kind of my first introduction to your music but then in one of the bonus episodes, you included an interview that you did on an, another podcast where you were talking about your music. And suddenly I heard that and I went, wow, here's a whole artistic side to this person that I had no idea about. And I'm I'm really digging. Like, it was the Fool's Guide that spoke to me probably the heaviest. And then a lot of the stuff on your Through Life album. For me, my the time where I was experimenting with music I'll have my artistic ideas, but they're more, all my songs were kind of demo-y, all acapella, sort of trying to play with ideas. First song I recorded was called Say What You Want to Say, and I recorded it when I was 19. What did you use to record it? I think it was a USB mic plugged into a, a computer and a SoundForge. You know, it was just me screwing around with the idea of key changes in some places and repetitive lyrics because I had I had an emotional core to that particular song, but I didn't have all the elements that you really need to make a song. So it's just like, okay, well, this is what I have. At the time, I was just starting to learn digital audio workstations and that sort of thing. So it's just like, mm -hmm. here's what I can do. But still, just this idea of there are so many ways you can express yourself. Mm -hmm. And they're all a version of your truth. Yeah, they're all valid. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Mm -hmm just gonna say with the fool's guide the other thing about it another thing i got from john lennon and by the way i've just for gosh onion i've just recorded a show with a friend of mine who's been on a couple of other times about john lennon's three books and if you haven't read his three books i just read them back to back and it was i can't tell you how inspiring it was and how brilliant some of the puns and wordplay are and the fool's guide in fact it's not the fool apostrophe s it's the fool's guide so you could take it as the fool's guide which means that we are run by fucking idiots most of the time we're run by fools so it's actually supposed to be a double meaning it could be like a, a guide for fools but I, I thought i'd leave it open like leave out the apostrophe because then you've got two options there so again i credit john lennon and other people for giving me a love of wordplay and i would say to people try and read john lennon's three books in his own right expanded in the works and skywriting by word of mouth they're awesome I completely agree. His wordplay and his jokes, you know, occasionally by modern standards, you're like, no, that does not work. But I, I guess you have to go into it. And this is pretty true of most of John's stuff. You got to go into it remembering, okay, yeah, there are certain elements about who he was that were damaging or did harm or weren't great, especially if you read Cynthia Powell's book and about the Lost Weekend and other elements of his life. But there seemed to be, in my perception of him and, the, and all my studies of, of his work and what he was trying to do, he was always coming from this place of brutal honesty. I'm not going to hold back. I'm going to say what I think is true. And what I think is true at 2.48 a.m. may be different from what I think is true at 2.50 a.m. Mm. But I'm going to publish whatever is the truth now. And for me, that was the biggest inspirational cue I, I took from his work. It's like, okay, truth changes, individual truth changes as you go through life, but that doesn't make it any less true. And 
there are going to be people that say, well, you shouldn't be saying X, Y, or Z. And, you know, there's social rules, there's all these elements, but maybe it's a sad tragedy that you can't appreciate anything close to a person's individual truth until they're no longer around to hear it appreciated. But truth is, is so valuable, whether it's individual truth or trying to figure out what truths lay between the individuals involved, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I wonder how we'll view Paul McCartney after he dies. Let's just say for argument's sake, I don't know, he lives to, say he lives to 82, 83. The thing with him, but I find with Paul McCartney in terms of maybe appreciating him to the full, is that he's always there doing something, having his face somewhere, doing an interview. And I think when he dies, I don't mean this in a callous way, it'll be probably the first time, it's almost the first time where we'll actually have a space where he's not occupying it with more stuff and telling the old stories. Funnily enough, it's when someone retires or when someone dies that you've actually got weeks and months and years and even decades to assess what they're doing because they're not constantly adding to it. Because I think Paul McCartney, is he's not allowing any mystique. You know, there's a bit of mystique about him for sure, but he doesn't allow enough mystery because he's always there. He's always doing stuff. Like, fine, he's a workaholic, great. But um, with John Lennon, there's obviously it's all gone in waves. You know? And again, I just have zero interest in cancel culture and social media deciding that he's a wife beater i just have no interest in that at all again you know if people are interested go at it you know not judging but the fact that somebody's not there does change the way you look at them but that doesn't have to necessarily be false now, like i said maybe at the top of the show i think there has been a sort of callousness in the way that his widow and his estate have marketed him because they've obviously played up the peace nick which was you know, I think he was dedicated to it. I think he was dedicated to changing the world, but that was one John Lennon of many. I want to add my two cents, if that's okay. Go for it. Uh, try to be Paul for a second. Okay, mm. I'm I'm Paul McCartney. I'm in my late seventies. I've I've done great work. I like working. I I keep working. I keep trying to do what works for me. And if you're Paul McCartney, that's great. That's who he is. That's what he is. I respect the hell out of that. I don't think there's any artist from music to film or or whatever that I haven't immediately seen some value in even hip-hop which you know I don't enjoy hip-hop but I see some artistic value in so that's great but you know there's this difference between being a creator of art and being a consumer of art and when you're the creator you need the space to do your thing whether you're Paul McCartney or George Lucas or whoever you might be but if you're on the consumer end and you grow up with Star Wars and suddenly George Lucas decides to release the prequel trilogy and then Disney subsequently buys it. It's like, excuse me, you're shitting on my childhood. Stop that. <laughs> yeah. So it's very much that dynamic. And, and the thing about John is, and any creative person for that matter, a person is never all one thing. You can never boil down a person to one single note. And sometimes in order to appreciate somebody's art, somebody will focus on one note of that person's career. Or as you pointed out, Yoko, to a large degree, and the John Lennon estate in general has very much played up that image of him from roughly 70 to 73 or so, maybe not quite mm. extending that far. You uh, know, I'd say, sorry to interrupt, I'd probably say like the piece maybe 68 to 72, really, because he, he pretty much gave up on activism after the, they lost yeah. the election in 72. So say 68, 72, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They focused on marketing that one image and, and you missed the rest of it. Can I just say one thing? If there are Paul McCartney fans listening who are 
irritated by what I said before. I love the guy. I think he's amazing. I think what he's given to the world is phenomenal. And I think after he dies, like I said earlier, we will be reveling in what he gave to the world for years and decades after. So I've got nothing against him. It's just a thing of overexposure, really. And I'm sure there were people, actually, I had my mum on my podcast, which was pretty cool. And I think I don't know if it was on mic or off mic, but she was saying, you know, we did get sick of the Beatles because they were just everywhere. Every newspaper you picked up back in the early 60s, she was talking about that. And um, yeah, so it's, it's just overexposure. I think to fully have people appreciate what you're doing, you've got to leave a little bit of mystery and you've got to leave a bit of a gap. You can't just be exposed all the time because you're not giving them the space to absorb what you've already done. If you're constantly just doing stuff all the time, that's what I'd say. Yeah. And I think that's fair. And I, I share your feelings. I respect the hell out of who Paul McCartney is and, and the work he's done and what he's, what he tries to do, but it's at times to quote George Harrison, it's all too much. <laughs> Perhaps one of the greatest achievements of his life really was his relationship with Linda. Because if you think about the tabloid media, if there had been any hint that either of them had been unfaithful or that they'd had marital troubles, you know, the tabloids would have been all over it. But I've never heard anything. You know, there's all these silly rumours that John and Paul were wife-swapping with Linda and Yoko. You could literally say anything. You know, you could start any rumour you want and someone will probably latch onto it. But I think that's a great achievement. And the way he's brought up his kids, I think perhaps we should look at that as perhaps his greatest achievement, along with the music. That's very true. I mean, both in terms of actual years lived and mm. I think in terms of experiences had, and of course, this is, I don't, I don't think this is any reflection on John because his life was tragically and horribly cut short. But Paul has been able to live a very, very full life. And for a Beatle, you look at the way George's life went after the breakup, the way Ringo's life went after the breakup, the way John's life went up at the breakup. You look at it and realize, wow, Paul, I think really both as a Beatle and then as a solo artist and a person was really starting down a different path than the other three were. And of course, the great thing, it's not my favorite era, but the great thing about the White Album, Get Back slash Let It Be and Abbey Road is that you see that this is no longer one artist, but this is now four unique individual artists. Yeah. I always found it interesting that the two, arguably the two truth seekers of the Beatles are the ones that aren't with us anymore. And are also the ones, tragically enough, that both attracted the worst kind of fan. Because, of course, as I'm sure you know, George Harrison nearly died when he was attacked in his house in 1999 by, a, obviously, a highly mentally disturbed a guy from Liverpool, weirdly enough. I need to learn more about George. I understand who he was, kind of. I know Within You and Without You is an absolutely wonderful piece. Yeah, I love it. It embraces world music and it does so much, but it... It's not the eight minutes of the of Sergeant Pepper that I enjoy the most. It's just opinions, isn't it? It's what what connects with you and what doesn't. But um, what I was going to say with George, uh, if you don't know this story, yeah, I mean it's awful. You know, in 1999 he was living in this enormous house in Henley, and I actually went to Henley College, and we actually went up to <laughs> we went up to find his house, and then we saw a house that looked fairly big. And we thought, that's quite, quite a big house, but that's not as big as we thought. And then someone said, yeah, that's the gardener's house. Oh. <laughs> so, the, yeah, so the gardener had a fairly big house. But then someone uh, managed to scale the wall and in the middle of the night, got into George's bedroom and, and stabbed him and was about to, was 
very close to stabbing him to death. And in fact, it was his wife, Olivia. I think she picked up a champ. No, not a chandelier. Candelabra or something and started fighting the guy off. George was also fighting him off while shouting Harry Krishna at him. So I like, I like to think it was actually George's sense of humour. I don't think it was meant as earnestly as it might sound. I think he was actually trying to throw the guy off. But it's just very interesting to me that those two guys were the ones who were attacked by, I'm not going to say fans. We don't know if Mark Chapman was actually a Beatles fan per se. We know he had some interest in them, but it's very grisly, of course. I mean, whenever I think about what happened to John Lennon, there have been you know, dramatizations of it. It's just really awful. And it's not because it's him. It could be anybody. For me, it's like it destroys my heart because I think if somebody had taken Chapman aside or talked to him or seen him for a person that was in trouble or having problems sometime before it happened, you might have been able to avoid the situation. But so often what happens, especially with mental health and being a person that has suffered greatly with mental health challenges, is people don't see it right is maybe the best way. And for me, the tragedy of the way Chapman and John Cross paths was that in many ways, if you look at their life stories individually, you you could almost think to yourself, had Chapman been thinking in a different way, you could almost see them having some sort of positive exchange. I just recently got back into Milk and Honey and, and rediscovered I Don't Want to Face It. And God, that's just so haunting. I mean, borrowed time and you know, off of Double Fantasy, watching Wheels as well, and pretty much every song he did at that time. Again, listening to your podcast, it's like, it's strange. At the time it came out, Double Fantasy, people didn't think much of it. But as soon as he died, of course, that's all we have left. Yeah, it all takes on this incredible poignancy. That always happens when someone dies, and particularly if they die in, a, in an awful way. You know, it's not natural causes. I'm not a massive Elvis fan, but I did a show about it. Elvis died of quote-unquote natural causes in the sense that nobody did anything to him. He abused himself. But Elvis was seen in a completely different way as well. But I think with John Lennon, yeah, I've done a few shows on this. Episode two was about the last day of his life. If you really want to go into deep, crazy town podcasting, episode 36 was me finding parallels between John Lennon, Mark Chapman, Marlon Brando and myself. That was kind of a crazy episode because I'd done an episode on the murder with somebody who has a conspiracy website and we were kind of speculating about that. And then I had so many notes left over that I decided to do another episode reading my notes and that went off into all kinds of places. But I think you in particular, if you haven't heard episode 36, I think that would absolutely speak to you. I remember that episode. And, and listen to that, yeah. Yeah, I, li <laughs> I listened to both 36 and 2, and quite honestly, that probably played a significant part in releasing an episode where I did my own version of the same, same sort of thing, mm. which was the one I just released, which is what is neurodivergence, where I go into this whole bit about thinking differently and seeing parallels in my life and John and et cetera, et cetera. Absolutely. It's funny, it's like both creatively and intellectually, in a way you're sitting there going, okay, I know I'm crossing a line here. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? Or is this just a thing? If it's good for you, it's a good thing. And, you know, as I said to you earlier, we impose so much, so many rules on ourselves, as well as all the rules which are imposed on us. And God knows how many new laws have been written while we've all been dealing with COVID. I don't even want to think about it, to be honest. I was crossing a line, but what's the worst that could happen to me? Someone might write some abusive, say, oh, I hate you, you're glorifying him. And that would just be water of a duck's back. 
you know, I'd take it in, but it wouldn't kind of train myself not to be affected by that kind of thing. But people uh, went with it. You know, I mean, the, the numbers on those episodes, not that that's really important, but they went down a little bit. But I think I said in the next the intro to the next one if you've been turned off come back home kind of thing <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm going back to some regular programming if i'm offending somebody they don't have to listen you know if you hear something offensive on an episode just turn it off if you decide to carry on and just keep being offended 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 then it's about you wanting to be offended and wanting to vent some sort of anger that's inside you and i've been there i've done it myself absolutely if you continue to listen you're making a an unwritten contract that you're accepting what somebody is saying on a podcast. And let me just put a little caveat to that. I'm not really talking politically because I think that's a slightly different thing. If you're putting out politically offensive ideas, that is a little bit different. This is very, very niche. You know, the story of John Lennon and Mark Chapman is about as niche as you can get because there's barely anyone who's interested in it. Most people want to say he did it to become famous. I don't want to say that guy's name. You know, most of the other Beatles podcasters, you will never hear them say his name, which is fine. But when you're talking about something that's so niche, if you decide to keep listening, then I'm sorry, you've made a contract to accept that I'm saying it, not to accept that you agree with it. That makes sense. A hundred percent. I delve much more into the political world than you do, but my philosophy over these past 15 point whatever years has been very similar. It's like, well, this is probably not going to be a thing that I'm going to make money from. And it's probably almost better that I don't make much money from it. Mm. So I'm just going to do whatever I want. And if you don't like it, you can turn it off. Hey, can I ask you something? Could you just explain neurodivergence exactly? I think I understand what it means. I prefer to hear it directly from you rather than look on the internet. (laughs) (laughs) To me, it is the idea of embracing mental variation. Right. I mean, if you look at the history of mental health and psychology and psychiatry and all of that crap, you find that people recognized that not everybody was equal mentally, that some people were better at some things than other things. And at a certain point, Freud or later, I I don't have the history memorized, but around the point of Freud, let's just say, for simplicity's sake, you started going down this path of people are broken, we need to fix them. And the people are broken idea is based not necessarily on whether that person actually feels functionally impaired in any way, but more on the external perspective. So it's like, okay, well, if somebody is isolating all day and they're grumpy and they have a hard time going from one task to another, we're going to call them autistic and we're going to say that they are maladaptive. Mm. The way they've adapted to life is not good. So we're going to try and change their behavior to make them adapt to societal norms. But of course, societal norms are not a fixed thing and they're controlled by, I'll just loosely say, the powers that be. So it ends up being this landscape, to me, of the medical communities, the psychological community, the prison industrial complex, the mental industrial complex, so on and so forth. You end up with this place of We need to make people normal instead of this place of, gee, each person is different. Some people are far more different than others. And hey, this guy Maslow in the late 50s and early 60s found a little bit of nugget of something 
in that he noticed that some of the people, not all the people, but some of the people that were more successful creatively were different. So, so for me in college, it became this thing of, oh, gee, I noticed this crossover between what Maslow called self-actualizers and what modern psychology calls the mentally ill. And of course, Maslow's filter was, I only want to study the healthy because everything, everyone before him had studied the broken. But in saying that I only want to study the healthy, you know, when he did case studies on the 18 people he studied, I don't remember the entire list, but I know Einstein was on there. He missed critical parts of their life stories. And I think there are researchers Again, I mentioned them in, in the previous episode that are starting to catch on to this. And I think in terms of the word neurodivergence, it was a sociologist, Judy Singer, who coined the term in, in 98. And it was kind of in recognition of the fact that maybe what we've been calling illness this whole time is only illness in a certain respect, I guess. You know, it's a matter of perspective and whether your view of the world is everybody should be stormtroopers a la Star Wars or everybody should have uniqueness and variation. But for me, I looked at the great creative artists of the past. This list is so long that I can't even begin. I look at myself and I look at other people that seem to have similar traits. And I say to myself, well, okay, speaking purely only from my own experience and from what I've studied and seen from other people, I see this thing of great work comes as a consequence of pain and trauma, and that sucks. But maybe there's a way to give the type of people that experience the world as a string of never-ending traumas a safer space where they can still experience it without losing what makes them special. Yeah, I think we are making progress. Perhaps one thing that people are realizing in the 21st century and amazingly, we're more than a fifth of the way through the 21st century, which is totally crazy. I think people really are starting to understand that fine line between what's normal and what's mad, in inverted commas. And um, R.D. Lang, if you haven't come across him, L-A-I-N-G, just a name maybe you could write down and check out. And there's a good podcast from the BBC called In the Psychiatrist's Chair. And it was running years ago. But if you look at R.D. Lang's episode on there, I think if you listen to that episode, you will uh, I say love it, as in you'll be very stimulated and interested by it. But there's a fascinating story. I don't know if it was Lang or someone else. Have you ever heard the story of the guy as an experiment who went to, a, I'm going to say mental institution. I don't know what the PC word is, but you know what I'm talking about. Allah, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. He went there as a kind of an actor or a journalist. I can't remember what he was, but he went in there and he told them, I hear voices. I think it was just one phrase. And then he spent the rest of the time trying to get himself discharged from there. And he couldn't, based on this one thing that he had said when he walked in. That's just a crazy story. But yeah. I, feel like we are, I feel like we are making progress. I think people are finally cottoning on. It's a very, very, very slow process. Again, not helped by mainstream media, which just works in absolutes. It just keeps everything as simple as possible. There's just so much to unpack about the world. and. The only way we can get closer to something better, if we if we can do it at all, is just through trying. Like you were saying earlier in, the, in our conversation, do a little bit of something each day to kind of push the boundaries. Maybe it'll work out. That's all you got. 
Yeah. And I, I wanted to tell you something um, that I think you find useful is about attracting the right people into your life. Now, I used to work with activists for a while in London, and we used to do events like showing documentaries, and um, we were never really protesters. We would stand on Oxford Street, which is a street in the middle of London, with a sign saying, we have important questions, see me. It's like that, that thing the headmaster tells you at school, see me, which means you're in trouble. But in our case, it was, we have interesting questions. And again, what I was saying to you earlier, by approaching us and saying, right, I want to answer your questions, they're making a contract whereby you can't suddenly start getting offended. Because right. you've agreed to approach us. And we would just ask questions about the world and understanding of media. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? And I have to say, you know, and, and you and I being very honest here, which I love, my breath was taken away by how innocent the public are in terms of politics, in terms of having an expansive view of the world. And that was over a period of months. So I'm not just pulling stuff out of my head. The way to attract people is most people, if you meet socially, most people don't talk about anything deep the first time you meet them. I think we could agree on that. You know, oh, you just yeah. Talk, you just make small talk so people, everyone's comfortable. So what I used to find is that I would do the same thing. I was sort of programmed by my background. I'd say most people's background to just talk about nothing, just to be comfortable. What I found then was that people would feel that we had connected and then they'd invite me socially and I'd go out with them a few times and then I'd realize we're never going to talk about anything deep. <laughs> and I'm sorry, but you know, I just, I just doesn't interest me. Just talking about nothing all the time doesn't interest me. So I, I suddenly realized through books, through discovering podcasting around 2008, not making podcasts, but absorbing them. And just going on a, an incredible journey of self-coaching and self-discovery and being very honest with myself, I sort of realized the only way you're going to attract people that are interested to you is to start going to the deep stuff the first time you meet someone. And that doesn't mean, you know, telling someone your life story because that's just going to put them off. But expressing who you are or who you want to put out there, and that's the only way that you're going to attract like minds. Because if you just talk about nothing, you know, you might attract like minds, but it'll be a bit more inadvertent. And people will think that they've connected with you, but then you'll realize that they're never going to talk about anything particularly profound. So that's the way to do it, I'd say. Yeah. Thank you, Anthony. Mm. I, that sounds really good. And that makes a lot of sense. You know, I've, I've done the protest scene, Occupy mm. Seattle, et cetera. And I would describe myself, as you will know, uh, now more as kind of this ivory tower reclusive person. It's funny. It's like, so much of the world just lives at that shallow level of their eyes are closed, metaphorically speaking. And I'd estimate, at least in the local area that I live in, just taking a stab at it in the dark at the numbers, you know, there's, there's about 100,000 people in the area that I live in. And I'd guess maybe 500 of those 100,000 people have their eyes in some variation of an open state. You know, obviously it varies person to person. Of those 500 people, I'm discovering I can have those real conversations that I value and have it kind of work with about three out of those 500 people. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why, of course, even though the internet is the fruit of the whole Silicon Valley CIA bit, it does have this nice ring of, well, you know, you can create a podcast and you can connect to a person that's thousands of miles away and kind of make it work that way. You know, finding the right person is is a difficult thing, but I think you're 
your life experience and your wisdom and, and your thoughts on that are absolutely solid. And I guess that brings me to, in your recent life experience, my understanding through listening to your, your podcast is at some point you moved out of Madrid and, and moved on and started going into a more life coaching direction. What has that experience been like for you and, and what are you hoping to do there, I guess? Well, <laughs> the shift to life coaching has been very, very slow. But I find that with English teaching, basically I teach adults and I teach uh, English as a second language. So I'm not teaching in a high school or anything. And at the moment I'm working online. I find that and my music and my podcasting, in a funny way, it's almost all the same thing in that it's all, I would say performing, but not performing in a fake way. I don't mean it as like putting on a performance, but obviously if I'm very tired and I have an English class, I have some students who I have quite a close relationship with, but if it's someone who I had just have a, a warm professional relationship, I'm not going to start going to them. Oh, I'm really tired today. I can't really be bothered with this. You know, I, <laughs> truth and honesty is one thing, but you've got to play the game to some extent. And even John Lennon would say that <laughs> even the most way out person, even probably Frank Zappa would, would appreciate that, but it's all being in a creative performance state. I just feel with life coaching, you know, I have gone on this very, very long journey. It's been thousands of hours, really, of absorbing content, thinking and doing my own writing and everything. I just want to impart that. And English teaching can get very frustrating because you are essentially listening to the same mistakes for hour upon hour, months, years. So it's been a gradual transition, but it's quite seamless in one way because a lot, a lot of English teaching, sometimes you feel like you're a bit of a therapist or a life coach. Because when I used to actually go into offices and teach in Madrid, for example, a lot of business people, they just want to offload. And I didn't really mind because it, it was interesting for me. You know, I'm a, I've studied psychology. I'm very interested in, uh, very curious about people. So I used, to say, I used to almost say, you know, if you just want to talk, let's do it. You know, if you want to do exercises, I've got plenty of exercises we can do, grammar, etc. So I'm trying to make it really as seamless as possible and trying to, um, yeah, just just pass on what I've learned really you know there's various techniques for rapport I think we learn through life through life uh, see what I did there. you learn that even the biggest rebel let's say you know said John Lennon Frank Zappa pick those rebels they all knew that you have to negotiate life and you try and be as truthful as you can but it is all a game as well you know when you go out there in the world or even if you switch on your computer if you work online for example you are still performing quote unquote yeah, I'm just trying to, to make a transition there. I'll probably end up doing lots of different jobs, probably be part of the gig economy. That, that's kind of what I'm thinking for some variation of my future, too. Like, it's it's a very hard world to navigate right now, obviously. And, yeah. you know, you just you try and scratch your head and figure it out. You try and make it work. And I think I said it in, in some spots, and I probably articulated it better there than I'm going to in, in this moment. But you learn... By fucking up horribly. <laughs> <laughs> that is the only way a person can learn. <laughs> you know, you just go into something and you say, okay, I'm going to try this. I'm going to fail miserably, but I'm going to learn a lot from it. And that, you know, that's kind of the best you can do. I'm really wondering what your experience of being, how you've kind of adapted an approach to the changes in the world recently. In terms of content creation, you mean? In terms of yeah. content creation and in terms of, I get the sense from your music and from your content that you're not a person that generally thinks inside the box a ton. 
I mean, just just being in that space of being a person that, you know, can't or doesn't follow the beaten path. How have you navigated that and dealt with that throughout recent history? Well, I mean, the actual creativity itself is probably helped by all of this stuff because there's so much to think about, to write about. I mean, if you want to talk about just the state of the world, I mean, it's interesting on one level, I think it's still possible to bury your head in the sand, read the news and kind of have a vague idea that someone's still in control. But I think if you really look at it, it's a very weird time. I mean, that's the legacy of 9-11, really. I think now everybody knows, everybody with willingness to find out knows that regardless of what you think actually happened on 9-11, rather not get into that, the aftermath is that the American government was given carte blanche to do basically anything they wanted because everyone was in a state of trauma. So what we're seeing really is the effect of that in this kind of creeping, I would say Orwellian state or surveillance state, you know, that a lot of people I speak to just seem to have no idea it's happening. I don't know. I think it's because humans are so adaptable. That's the way we've survived. I think it's a little bit of normalization too. I mean, yeah. think about just in the last year and a half, you might see, or at least I would see occasionally, usually somebody from the eastern part of the world, if they were sick, they would wear a mask, but that was the only person that would, that's the only place you would see that. And now, of course, for many, it's normal. And it's just a matter of, you have this established norm. And I think there are opportunist people out there that might see an event take place and say, oh, here's a chance to change the norm just a little bit. Just, you mm. know, dial up the temperature just a little bit. And I think when you do it subtly, put in the notes here, boiling frog style, I think that's very much it. You don't notice you're boiling until you're like, holy crud, I'm boiling. And you wake up one day and it's just like, how? It's funny, having done this, I think podcasting started with Adam Curry around 2004. I'd have to double check that to be absolutely sure. But, you know, I started in 06, so I, I got in pretty close to the beginning and it was... At the start, it was just this hobbyist thing. You know, you record something, you put it on the internet, you see what happens. And now it's very much the thing of, oh, suddenly it's not enough for it to be a hobbyist thing. Suddenly it must be a professional thing. And suddenly you must worry about every single thing you say. And I think really, if any of us sat down and recorded ourselves or put ourselves under high scrutiny for any amount of time, we're going to say stupid stuff. <laughs> That's the nature of humanity. Yeah. I think people are free to still make podcasts if you don't expect to make anything at all from it. You know, it's, people are still free to just make podcasts if they want, you know, of course. But tell you another story, actually, um, just very briefly. There's been a kind of a confluence of capitalism, which has always been there, but you could argue is sort of raging and becoming more rampant as time goes on and then this weird free culture we live in where you're sort of obliged to give content out for free up to a certain point and then sort of apologetically try to make uh, some change from it i was contacted probably on the strength of life and life only by um a new app i mean there must be a million apps in the world and they said oh you know we we'd like you to be a top mentor I was like, oh, yes, you know, oh, top mentor, look at me. So I went to the website, and it's uh, basically anyone can be a top mentor. You, you just apply to be a top mentor. It's not some holy grail of content creators. Anyway, so uh, 
they kept sending us emails saying, oh, the app is ready to launch. You're going to make money. They specifically said, you're going to make money from this. And I'm like, oh, okay, fine. So the idea is that you dispense some wisdom to people and somehow make money from it. So they put a YouTube video out. And lo and behold, you find that in fact, it's gift vouchers, not money. And um, the gift vouchers sort of scroll under the screen. But the one that kind of leaps out is uh, Starbucks, just for example. So you're kind of giving away some kind of mentorship, some kind of wisdom, some kind of advice. Maybe they saw her as a life coach. I have no idea. And uh, you're going to get basically Starbucks or whatever gift vouchers. And then they have the audacity to say something about, oh, oh, we would encourage you to donate your vouchers to charity or something. So it's this, this weird thing where, I don't know, it seems like um, companies or capitalists, to use a broad term, they're taking this thing where they're going to make money from it. You're kind of lied to that you're going to make money. In the end, you get gift vouchers, and then you're encouraged to donate it to charity. Isn't that incredible? It is incredible. If someone out there, for whatever reason, decided they liked my work and they wanted to hear feedback or advice or something, and they came to it me and asked for it, I would happily give it to them just because I'm a nice person, probably mm. to the detriment of myself. <laughs> I've been very much caught up in that free thing, like the idea that in order to to have worth, you must be producing something. And even though, you know, all the work I do, you know, podcasts these days, a song demo sort of level songs, I have a very hard time slapping that up on the internet and saying, okay, that'll be $5, please, or mm-hmm. setting up a Patreon or, or anything like that. I'm very much a, well, this is output that's going to happen anyway you might as well have it i'd rather people hear it than not hear it but yeah i mean after doing it for so long and then burning yourself out too i I mean Mm -hmm. you work at a certain rate all the podcasts you put out all the music you put out i I can't imagine that you have a whole lot of spare energy i know i don't (laughs) i mean the music was quite a long time ago to be honest I just occasionally do little bits, like I did that mix of Life Goes On, because I just felt like that, because I had the individual stems. Um, Okay, yeah. You know, I've consumed uh, thousands of hours of podcasts for free. I understand that that's the way it is. And songs, it's fun to just put stuff up online, I'll be honest, you know, for people people to listen and to enjoy it and... Sometimes it feels like, you know, you, you're looking for a pat on the back, and that may be true, you know, someone to say, oh, well done, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure we, sure we are perhaps looking for that to some extent, but it's also sharing sharing nice stuff. So I really enjoy that aspect of it, and uh, everyone wants to be honest, which is fine, and I, I love honesty, but sometimes you've got to think, oh, you know, the person that doesn't create podcasts maybe just doesn't know how much effort it takes. Yeah, huge effort, and it's fun up to a point. But then uh, the editing, I, I, I don't ever find fun. Really, the only fun is if if it's a conversation that I had ages ago, and I get to listen to the conversation again. <laughs> but if I'm editing something that I recorded a couple of days ago, I don't consider that fun at all. It's work. Yeah, it is. It is. It's a ton of work. It's it's tiring, and it's. I still don't remember why I suddenly decided to post my random thoughts on the internet. I, I will probably never remember why, but it's just so interesting. It's like. Okay, I'm posting random thoughts on the internet. People are downloading it. Yeah. Now it's 15 and a half years and 351 mainline episodes later. Jesus, amazing. How much of it is for you? For you? How much of it is cathartic for you? And how much do you think is for other people? Is it some kind of mix, would you say? If it's a unscripted episode, 
that's mostly for me to get it out there to just get the crap that's in my head out of my head. Mm. When I go to edit, though, that's me filtering it and trying to make it somewhat mm. consumable for the masses. I used to just do raw recordings and then edit whatever I didn't like out in post, which, of course, would take mm. pages. These days, usually what I'll do is I'll have some concept, some idea, and I'll pound it out on the keyboard for four or five hours, and then I'll record it, and then I'll edit it for another six or seven hours. Wow. I'm really curious. What's your process? How do you go from episode idea to, okay, it's posted now. I don't have to think about it anymore. <laughs> now I'm going to obsessively watch the numbers or whatever it is you, you end up doing in your personal experience. I have managed to stop doing that, actually. Good for you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let me think. So, yeah, I have the idea. Most of them involve another person, so I contact them. Now, I think because I've had, people can look at the guests I've had. Don't generally get too many people turning you down for the glass onion one, but a couple of people do. The ones where I don't put sound clips in, they take a lot less time. But yeah, I go through the conversation, edit it, do a first edit, and then listen back and make little tweaks. And then as I'm listening back, I write down ideas for the intro, for the links, and what to put in the show notes. So I kind of kill two birds with one stone. I do that all while I'm listening. And then just put the music on and put the sound clips. And the sound clips can, it's quite amazing. Like sometimes I put four or five sound clips that are about two or three minutes each. And I find two or three hours have gone by. There's a point in the creation of it where you think, oh, I'll be finished by like four o'clock. And then you find it's like 6.30 or something. <laughs> yep, that's how you end up with no sleep and standing up and going, oh my God, I've been in front of the computer for 13 hours. Yeah, I, I do limit myself. Because I, I think I was trying to put out a very furious rate to get established, but now I've got all three shows established. So I've kind of chilled on it a lot, to be honest. You should do yeah, the same. I really, really should. <laughs> you know, four episodes a, a month is reasonable. It's, it's when I get an idea at three o'clock in the morning that I get myself in trouble. <laughs> yeah, I used to have that as well. Because that middle of the night thing, you get some good ideas. Yeah. Any creative endeavor that I might undertake, it's like a, trying to get a stunt car to jump through an open box car window, one <laughs> side of the train to the other. You have to time it just right, otherwise it ends horribly. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the creative process is certainly interesting, especially, especially these days. I don't know. I think I made a decision at some point that I wasn't really trying to make money from it. So it's just personal pride if you like having created it you wanted to talk about some lyrics of john lennon before we hit record i was listening to milk and honey yeah or at least to the the john lennon sections of it mm. let's see i still have spotify open so what did i listen to i listened to borrowed time i don't want to face it and nobody told me wasn't it? nobody told me yeah. yeah but yeah this notion of it must be a somewhat of a middle age thing. That's the only way I can conceptualize it. You know, you start out thinking the world's going to be one way. Mm. And, you you know, you go through life experience and you go from worrying about getting that attractive person to suddenly worrying about, oh, what's my legacy going to be? Or, or just the change in priorities. And it's just an, an interesting shift because it's it's not only embracing at a certain point, the nature of who you are because you've come far enough in life to realize that there's only so much you can change, but also looking at the world around you and then going, I don't want to face that. Mm. I do want to save humanity, but 
But truly, it's people I cannot stand. Yeah, that's a, such an incredible line. Isn't it? Oh my god! I when I re-listened to that recently, I think it was sometime after our last interview. I was listening to that and sit there. It stopped. Okay, John, I realized you were most likely writing that in reference to yourself. Yeah. So the line for people that don't know something like you say you want to save humanity, but it's people that you just can't stand. It's interesting actually thinking about that. Again, he wouldn't have meant that, but if you think about, um, I don't know, for example, SJWs or, or... I remember I had an American friend and she said, uh, everyone in my area is a liberal. They've got quite rich liberals. And this is just, you know, one subsection of society. And she said they believe in all the liberal causes, but they don't live any of them in their everyday life, which is really fascinating. We must have all met people like that. They kind of project a general sense of inclusion in the world. And then they don't practice it. I mean, George Carlin, you'll know this, used to talk about NIMBY. Not in my backyard. Yep. People saying, oh, you know, we need to to help immigrants. We need to help minorities. As long as there's not any real people, real minorities anywhere near me. I don't think he meant that, but I think his lyrics are just so open. When you come up with a killer line, Bob Dylan did this a lot, still does. Yeah, I did. Where, you know, it's just open to interpretation, but it, it kind of works very neatly yeah so he's expressing that idea that he wants the best for the world but then perhaps he has trouble with personal relationships which is really really interesting and then nobody told me again you know nobody told me there'd be days like these most peculiar mama you know yeah i'm sure at any point in the world people were probably saying wow things are changing really quickly the modern age i've always been interested in the titanic story because i think that's a really interesting societal story and in fact i'm going to put something on uh, life and life only it's such a multifaceted story. But uh, what I was going to say was when it was a 100-year anniversary, which is 2012, someone bought me, uh, you could buy some of the original newspapers. And uh, it was fascinating to see a newspaper from 1912. First of all, the writing was very, very poetic. But also it was interesting. There was loads of stuff, references to the fast pace in the modern world. So it could be that any point in history, people are saying, God, blimey, technology is taking over, the world's going mad and all that. But having said that, I'm not sure it could be any more crazy and moving faster than it is at the moment. Obviously, a lot of that's to do with the quote-unquote global world, the global village. Right. Where, you know, you and I, for example, have access to do this. And while, while I'm asleep, you're awake, preparing it. And while you're asleep, I'm preparing a podcast or whatever I'm doing. I can't imagine the world could be any madder than it is now, but perhaps it was. Obviously, you know, 20th century was, we had two world wars. That was pretty crazy, obviously. The 20th century was insane. and it's, Yeah, of course. Yeah. I wanted to follow up on something that we just briefly touched upon in the first conversation. You mentioned FDR, and I didn't follow up on it, and I feel the need. <laughs> so, FDR... It's so interesting, specifically that mention you made of him saying that a president isn't so much elected as chosen. And I think that's very true if you look at the primary process. And it's very interesting to me that that mirrors the parliamentary process. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but I was in the UK for the 2010 election, which I think Cameron and the coalition government Cameron and Clegg, yeah. Yeah, thank you. I'm looking at it and I'm going, so 
you don't directly elect your leader. It's just whatever party has the majority. Well, that's no better than what we have. Interesting. You know, you you don't have as much choice as you think you, you do, I guess. And a lot of people will praise FDR up and down. There's certainly a lot to praise. But it's interesting to me how much gets missed. I mean, he was the one that signed Japanese internment, for instance. And he ran for a fourth term when he knew full well he was not in good health. And he didn't bother to tell Truman anything. Yeah, I mean, Truman gets blamed for the Nagasaki and Hiroshima bombs. Because he came in, I think he came in in 45, didn't he? Yes, that sounds right. And that was the same year. So he essentially, for people that think, you know, the nuclear bombs were, atomic bombs were a terrible idea, he gets blamed for that. But he had just come in. And, uh, I mean, who the hell knows what goes on behind the scenes? Jeez. I mean, someone like Jimmy Carter, who some would consider one of the best presidents or seemed to be kind of a, he was a peanut farmer, wasn't he? He seemed to be a kind of... A Christian (laughs) peanut farmer from Georgia. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, again, going by the image, he was uh, the typical, quiet, softly spoken Southern guy who, you know, wanted peace and everything. But, you know, he actually said something, I can't remember the quote, but about the Vietnam War, which is a a war I've studied a lot. But it was something like there was blame on both sides or giving the idea that what they had done to us was the same as what we'd done to them. That was the essence of the quote, which is, is just incredible. And then, of course, his... Oh, would it be Foreign Secretary? I can't remember. Uh, Tbignyu Brzezinski was instrumental in arming the uh, Mujahideen who became uh, Al-Qaeda. Right. Because the Russians were in Afghanistan. And equally, you know, Nick, Nixon was quite progressive in some ways. I think the EPA was on his watch. Now, they have that expression, you know, on my watch, or on his watch. So the, the atomic bombs were literally on, officially on Truman's watch. But how do you know what had come before? I mean... God, who the hell knows? And with the parliamentary process, yeah, I think it's become a fairly modern phenomenon that if a party in England has something close to a majority, they can kind of organise a coalition, as Theresa May's government did with a very small party in Northern Ireland, just to kind of push them over the line. So it's some weird kind of uh, numbers game where you're like, well, I've almost got a majority. Let's contact this party and say, oh, can we just pool our resources? We've reached a point where it's very difficult to get a majority now. And I feel like that may be because the public kind of see that both parties are pretty similar. I mean, the Tories are really ramping up certain things which are very uh, synonymous with Conservatives. But in general, we've been stuck in the centre. So it's just centre-left and centre-right for a long time. Pretty much the same thing over here. There's not a lot of variety. And at the time... I went over to the UK thinking, oh, parliamentary system's got to be better. And I'm sitting over there watching the BBC and I'm just watching and I'm like, oh, wait, this is just more US. <laughs> and Canada was the same experience and Australia, same experience. It's just like, oh, my God, it's it's all over. I think a lot of it's because it's, uh, it's essentially they're all in NATO. I always think of the, the Western powers as um, NATO, basically. It seems like there's a real uniformity between all the policies and the way things work in those countries, obviously with some differences. Subtle differences, but I think you're right. I think uh, the end of the World War II happened, obviously. Russia gets east and west gets west, and even though the wall is not there anymore, it, not a lot's changed. So, 
well, you know, I have a couple of Russian students. The idea is that everything was great in Russia in the 90s once the wall had come down. And they will tell you that's absolutely not the case. I don't know enough about this to, to comment too much, but essentially a lot of people will say that Russia was kind of sold off to the oligarchs, one of whom was Roman Abramovich, who took over Chelsea. And that Yeltsin was basically a drunk, and this is what my students say as well, and that he was in, in the hands of the Americans. And they kind of persuaded him to bring in all these neoliberal policies. And um, this very simplistic idea is that everything was great once the wall came down. But it's scary if you investigate history too much and you find things are not quite the exact opposite, but they're so different. Yeah, nothing simple. I think that's that's the easiest way to put it. And yeah. Since you brought up Vietnam and since we were talking about 60s last time, I wanted to see, particularly kind of with the what we would term the British invasion, Beatles, Rolling Stones, mm. The Who, all that, in mind... What are your thoughts on Kennedy and all that? Ooh, yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Well, again, before I knew any better, you know, as John Lennon said, nobody told me. <laughs> I, I think you could also use nobody told me in the sense that my parents didn't tell me what the world was actually like because they didn't know and their parents didn't tell them. So I like the nobody told me idea, you know, it just as a general thing. Everybody will say... Kennedy was a great man and a great president. But if you actually drill down, you probably find they don't actually know anything about his policies or what he was into. So I've been thinking about this a lot. This sounds incredibly cynical of me. But if you really drill down, it's the, the glamour of him. And he was a good-looking fellow and he had a very attractive wife. They were a very attractive couple. It's very difficult to get past that. And, of course, the horrible manner of his death and the fact that he was taken away but if you actually drill down into his policies, I think you'll find he was a lot more aggressive on Vietnam than we think. Chomsky talks about this quite a lot. He said that Kennedy actually invaded South Vietnam in 1963, which I couldn't quite verify. But yeah, I think the idea was much more of a hawk than we think. But then there's another school of thought that said that perhaps he was having a change of heart in the six months before he died, and perhaps that was why he was killed. Who knows? But uh, I think he's a very good example of how the image takes over and you'll find there's not as much substance behind it as you think. But some may disagree, you know. I took a... It was an online class, so I didn't, unfortunately, get much out of it. But I took a class called the Vietnam Era in college. And I can't remember for the life of me what books they assigned us. But the books were pretty much detailing how Kennedy started escalating in Vietnam. I mean, LBJ gets all the blame and... In some ways, I feel sorry for LBJ, but in other ways, no. Right, Absolutely right. not. I mean, you, you look at, what was that, November 64, right? Kennedy was November 63. That's right, that's right. Either way, just the, the timing of that is so amazing, because obviously I, did, I didn't live through the loss of Kennedy, but having lived through my era, I can imagine how desperate the people of the U.S. must have been for something, anything positive and joyful. Yeah. And here come the Beatles, and I want to hold your hand on Ed Sullivan. Well, circling back, we talked about 9-11. There you, you lived through that, so it was probably comparable or even bigger, obviously, with the more loss of life. But none of us realized at the time, but I believe there are forces in the world, and some would say this is very paranoid, whose immediate thought is to capitalize on whatever is happening. And in fact, 
just to give you a little example, there's a great documentary called The Corporation. I really would highly recommend you watch that. It's really fantastic. And there's a trader who talks about, as soon as he heard that the towers have been hit, he said, on one, one hand, I was thinking, you know, that, that's terrible. So a lot of people must have died. On the other hand, I'm thinking, what would happen to the stock price? Because he's a trader. And it sounds, it sort of sounds like, oh, he must be evil or something. But he, he's not. That's the business he's in. And I think perhaps if people thought of the government of the world more as a business, things might seem a bit clearer, perhaps. When Kennedy died or 9-11, basically there are forces in the world that are immediately thinking, how can we capitalize on that? And there's so much evidence for that. It's very difficult to dispute. Yeah. Carlin said it better than I ever could. I'm going to adapt it for our global stage. It's called the dream of prosperity because you have to be asleep to believe it. Well, you know, you can be prosperous, but it's, um, I think if you're too interested in the truth, perhaps that's where you get in trouble. I've just been talking about this, actually. I have a little meetup group here where I live. We were talking about that, about the red pill and the blue pill. We talked about The Matrix last week. Oh, right. I haven't seen those movies in forever. I'm not sure if I'm excited about the new one or not. Yeah, I think you can prosper in this world if you take the blue pill. But then would you be able to live with yourself if you're a kind of a person that almost needs the red pill? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You've got to swallow so much of your, um, I don't know, integrity. Yeah, it goes back to, we're starting to circle, so I, I think... Oh, we always do, yeah. We never we go from Kennedy to Red Pills, yeah, very quickly. I think it's safe to say, I I choose to take the Red Pill. I know that may have consequences. Mm. I'm a little tired of being worried about the consequences. Yeah. I'll just go back to Kennedy, just for two seconds. There are quite, possible, quite possibly good things that he did. He fired Alan Dulles. There's a quote about splintering the CIA into thousands of pieces or something like that. He also vetoed Operation Northwoods, which is a very interesting one. When you talk about conspiracy theories that turned out to be true, that's one that you can tell people about, Operation Northwoods. I just just think that the image overrides everything. And you said we like it simple. Of course, you know, imagine a news broadcast where they broke everything down. You know, most people wouldn't be able to take it, I don't think. A lot of the time, I like sound bites you know, because they're easy and you get the general idea of what's going on. But the thing you have to do, I think, is then investigate a bit further. Yeah. A lot of people just stop at the sound bites and that's it. And they say, oh, well, I'm informed about the world. That's fine. Everything's okay. It's like in your song. I mean, you got to do more than believe what you read on the... <laughs> Don't believe us any more than you would believe anyone else. Do your own research. Yeah. And then it's sort of ironically, um, I'm also saying believe what you read and believe what you see. Is it? <laughs> That's kind of what the the news is telling you. Don't worry, we've got all the answers. Can't get out of my bed There's a thought crime running through my head Can't take these rules And people are fools Who believe what they read And believe what they see The complexity in putting together a concise sequence of chords, melody, key changes. I love key changes myself as an aspiring composer. That's one of my favorite little tricks. The ability to do that and the ability, especially with a song and with really powerful lyrics that are intentionally vague, a la Mm. Strawberry Fields or something similar, 
maybe when you're sitting down and writing it, I know when I'm sitting down and writing lyrics, I'm not intentionally thinking, oh, this can be interpreted 25 different ways. Mm-hmm. And I'm intentionally contradicting myself in 25 different places. It's usually not that. It's usually, oh, I have this idea. Oh, wait, I changed my mind and it rhymes. But there's so much power in just the accidental flow of it, the creative process. And for me, creativity is absolutely a coping mechanism for pain. Mm. I suspect it was for John as well. But there's so much beauty that you can get out of it. And I guess the last point I want to visit is something like You've Got to Hide Your Love Away is so interesting to me and other songs of the Help era because it's if you listen to the lyrics, especially Help specifically, John's crying for help. Mm. But he's doing so in an up-tempo, rocky song. And creatively, that is something that I'm so envious of because it's like, okay, you know, it wasn't great that he couldn't ask for help directly. But he was able to turn a desperate plea for help into a rock song. That's a pretty damn cool talent. <laughs> yeah. I think he would say that the reason it was fast was probably because of the others, perhaps, George Martin and Paul or whoever. Because he, there's actually a piano demo he did, which is much more, when I was younger, so much younger. So, you know, like years later, he, he was very bitter about certain things. Oh, Yes. But interestingly, it, it works in his favour because if you listen to the Hollywood Bowl version of Help with John's kind of unfiltered voice, it's really quite amazing. There's a kind of breathlessness about it. It's absolutely fantastic. And um, you mentioned who you got to hide your love away. You were talking about happy accidents. Of course, the line, feeling two foot small, was an accident. Supposed to be feeling two foot tall. <laughs> yeah. Feeling two foot small. And I think, I think there's a skill in recognising accidents. And with creativity, I think the creative space is the important thing. You know, A lot of people talk about um, going out for a walk with your creative self. Almost like a date. It's even be it's even been uh, described as an artist date or something. But being in that creative space where you turn off some of the filters or remove some of the filters, got a conscious mind, that kind of mind that we have to use to get through life, basically. The social mind. Yeah, it's funny you saying that. When I was a kid, I started lyric writing, songwriting pretty early. Came up with this just this little snippet trying to remember the words as i was walking down the street a very good friend i happened to meet it was the rainbow 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 he said he was very 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 sad i asked him why 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 that was all i had and i i can't remember when i wrote it or why i wrote it or whatever but um some years later middle of the night i'm walking through kind of a sketchy neighborhood and it's rainy dark feeling very cold, very bitter, and, and that was the perfect feeling to have because I came up with such a perfect response <laughs> for that mm. little bit that had been sitting in my head for God knows how many years. And it's, it's, it's amazing. You're right. Like, if you just 
open yourself up and mm-hmm. say, okay, I'm in my creative space right now. I'm going to do whatever my creative mind feels like doing, and I'm going to worry about editing it or making it sound right later. As I was walking down the street, a very good friend I happened to meet. It was the rainbow, rainbow, rainbow. He said he was very, very sad, and I asked him why, 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 and this is what he said to me. I am so damn sad. I am so damn mad. The world is so damn bad. No one loves anymore. It's not what the world is for. The world is for me alone. And since you're not me, you see, I must say fuck you. It's all the world can do. You really close your mind, relax, and float downstream. That's what it comes down to. Yeah, because you know, you know you can always edit it later. That's the thing. Uh, actually, a very good... Um, I'm sure you've heard of John Cleese, you know, of um, Monty Python. Oh, fame. of course, yes. He did a talk about creativity. It's a very funny talk. Like, there's loads of humour in it, but he makes some serious points. And one of them is kind of to do with the child mind and the adult mind. And essentially what he says is when you're in the creative process, in the creative space, you need to turn on the child mind and get rid of the adult for a while. So you're giving yourself a license to come up with anything. Like a child does, you know, a child doesn't filter. Yeah. Animals, my cat doesn't have any filter, you know, it doesn't filter its behavior at all. Then when you've done that, then you turn on the adult mind and you say you do a more of a kind of business-like sort of editing about it. If you want to do that, of course, if you want to create a totally abstract piece of art, then you don't even need the adult mind. You just go for it. But I think last time we talked about Frank Zappa, I always always give Zappa as an example of someone who appears to have no rules at all in their life. But actually, if you know something about Zappa, he also had a quite cold, hard businessman side of him, which a lot of it was to do with free speech and a lot of gaining control of his music as Prince did uh, years after that as well. But it's interesting, you think of like the, the most radical artists you can think of, and Zappa would be one of those. They still had that other side, which did like put things, you know, he put the finishing touches to his songs and put together the track listing for his album. So there's nothing wrong with being a little bit business-like about the way you go about your creativity. But the important thing is in the act itself, I think you've got to be a child almost, you know, turn off the filters. I think that's a, that's a great spot. That's John Cleese, though, not me. I didn't come up with that. I, I just want to say I appreciate slightly different culture. I don't always get British humor, but I genuinely appreciate it. Douglas Adams, especially. Oh, yeah, uh, he's like his good idea, of course. Maybe a more comforting me way for me to flare future episodes is just to say, okay, maybe the mice are just running things, and let's just wait for the Wolgons to show up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're a hyperspace Absolutely. bypass. Yeah. Often British humor seems to be based on subtleties and satire, subtleties and yeah. tone, which, as an autistic person, I don't always get, but sarcasm I can definitely pick up on, and... I'm less of an Anglophile now than I was before, but I 
I'm still definitely an anglophile. <laughs> there is a difference, of course, between a sort of straight sarcasm, which generally would be, you know, in Monty Python or something like that, it would be something along the lines of, uh, we praise our glorious queen or something like that. Where right, in, right. In the voice, you just know that they mean the opposite. Yep. And they're sending up the idea. But then, you know, satire probably cuts a little bit deeper, perhaps. I think there's a clear through line between um, Monty Python. Well, going back to things like uh, even Hard Day's Night and you know, the Richard Lester angle. Oh, yeah, definitely. And, definitely. and then through Monty Python. And then, of course, Eric Idle was involved with Saturday Night Live. So there's a wonderful through line that goes through that comedy, which um, probably starts in the early 60s in England or even in the 50s with the goons, although I've never really found them. Something interesting about Carlin, we were talking about the playing the game sort of thing, and it wasn't until after our conversation that I remembered, oh yeah, Carlin started out very conservative in his comedy relative to where he ended up with Class Clown, and then of course eventually Life is Worth Losing and everything else. Yeah. He watched the old clips from The Tonight Show and whatever was before that, but it was absolutely amazing, like... It was controversial, extremely controversial for him to bring out Hippie Dippy Weatherman. <laughs> right, yeah. So insane. And I, I guess that's probably the biggest takeaway for me is recognizing that there are moments in time and history as human history goes up upon what seems to be a continuous loop where you have a good deal of creative latitude and you can say more. And then there's more oppressive times. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I guess a tangent we won't go on now, but we could easily talk about how the comedy is so sanitized now as well. We could. Yeah. Uh, let's well. let's hopefully save that for another time. I get the feeling that you've got stuff to do and I've eventually got to sleep myself. So Yeah, you need to eventually sleep. But unfortunately, George Carlin, um, when he was on the Mike Douglas show, which was the week that John and Yoko, that wonderful, oh, yeah, that's surreal right. week, 1972, I'm sure they talked backstage about the world because I think Carlin uh, had uh, some sort of epiphany, let's say. I think partly through LSD, actually. And I think that happened years before his act actually changed. So I think he was compartmentalizing for a while. So I'm sure him and John, um, even if not on camera, I'm sure behind the scenes they talked about some good stuff. But we can revel in it, you know, check out some Dick Cavett clips. You know, they're coming out pretty much every day now on our favorite uh, video channel. So you can revel in how, uh, how the talk show seemed more open in those days as well, don't I? Oh, yeah, the talk show. Oh, God, we could go on so many tangents, Anthony. I'm, <laughs> I really enjoy talking to you. I really enjoy your content and your music. And I do want to ask if I can use one of your songs to kind of bridge to the outro stuff. And Sure. I, That'd be lovely. Thank you so much for your time, Anthony. And please... Feel free to share all your links with the listeners, and I will, of course, include them in the, the show notes. Yeah, well, it's good now because I've finally got a website. So Anthony, without an H, Rotuno, R-O-T-U-N-N-O.com. And um, yeah, that's got everything. So it's got uh, a blog. I was saying earlier how I flip between sometimes I'm writing, sometimes it's music, sometimes it's podcasting. I had a load of blog posts from many, many years ago, 2013 to about 15 and I've transferred all of them onto the website and then I've started adding more. So there's a blog, there's my music, there's tons of music, there's recorded music, live demos, and then there's links to all three of my podcasts. Glass Onion on John Lennon, Life and Life Only, and Film Gold. And they're available in all the usual places. 
Twitter seems to be quite a good place to connect with these. So Twitter at Onion Lennon, capital O, capital L, and then at Life Only 75 and at Film Gold 75. That's capital F, capital G. And there's a Facebook page with all the usual stuff. All the places where you get your favorite podcasts. And look at this. Just before we go, I just opened up Twitter and there's a wonderful news headline. Prince Philip's will to remain sealed for 90 years. <laughs> I saw that earlier. and I'm, what, a, I'm, what a perfect uh, coda to our conversation. What a completely random piece of information. I have to stay alive until I'm 136 to find out what's in Prince Philip's will. <laughs> Good grief. I just love how random that is. Brilliant. I'm going to thank you again so much, You're Anthony. You're Keep going with your show as well.
such beautiful work. Thank you again, Anthony. Life goes on, indeed. In a world where life is what happens while you're busy making other plans, we all desperately need the right people. Even if it's people that we just can't stand, and nobody told us we'd be living in hellhole California with a very depressed rainbow. Please, please, please check out Anthony's work at anthonyrutuno.com. I will, of course, have his many links at knickknackpod.net. That's N-I-C-N-A-C-P-O-D.net. If you'd like to support my work in the form of feedback or donations, please head to knickknackpod.net. Again, N-I-C-N-A-C-P-O-D.net. Reviews in the podcast app help as well. The music long list today is Raindrop Rhapsody by Josh Elkenberry, Mr. Rainbow No Love by Knickknack Marsh, The Fool's Guide by Anthony Rotuno, and of course, Catch Me If You Can by Attica Attica. If you enjoy this music, please, please, please support these independent artists by buying their work or making donations. I will, of course, again, have all the links in the show notes at knickknackpod.net. This podcast would be nothing without the great musical work of others, and occasionally myself. The Knickknack Podcast and FS Ride Along series is copyright 2006 through 2021 by Knickknack Marsh and is released under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial 4.0 International License. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. Consider the red pill, if it isn't naturally occurring in your life experience, and may you find the safety and support you need to empower you and meet your needs. Bye. been fantastic and I hope you enjoyed it. There is a point. Is there a point to all this? Let's find a point. Is there a point to my act? I would say there is. I have to. The world is like a ride at an amusement park and when you choose to go on it you think it's real because that's how powerful our minds are and the ride goes up and down and round and round. It has thrills and chills and it's very brightly colored and it's very loud and it's fun for a while. Some people have been on the ride for a long time and they begin to question, is this real or is this just a ride? And other people have remembered and they come back to us and they say, hey, don't worry, don't be afraid ever because this is just a ride. And we kill those people. <laughs> Shut him up. We have a lot invested in this ride. Shut him up. Look at my furrows of worry. Look at my big bank account and my family. This has to be real just a ride. But we always kill those good guys who try and tell us that. You ever notice that? And let the demons run amok? But it doesn't matter because it's just a ride. And we can change it anytime we want. It's only a choice. No effort, no work, no job, no savings of money. A choice right now between fear and love. The eyes of fear want you to put bigger locks on your door, buy guns, close yourself off. The eyes of love instead see all of us as one. Here's what we can do to change the world right now to a better ride.
Take all that money we spend on weapons and defense each year and instead spend it feeding, clothing, and educating the poor of the world, which it would many times over, not one human being excluded, and we can explore space together, both inner and outer, forever in peace. Thank you very much. You've been great. I hope you enjoy it. London, you're fantastic. Thank you. Thank you very much.